Hello and welcome to the Free Life Community Church Podcast. My name is John DeLille, and I'm the communications guy at Free Life Community Church in Terre Haute, Indiana. Each week, Senior Pastor Dan Willis brings a rich, detailed, and relevant message grounded in Scripture, which is recorded on Sunday mornings and made available for you right here. You can find more messages at freelifecc.com or in the Google Play and iTunes podcast app. Hey, if you've benefited from listening to these messages, we ask that you try to help us out. You can help us out in two different ways. First, you can give us a rating in the app store that you use. Secondly, share this podcast with a family member, a friend, or a colleague. This really does help us to get these messages into the hands of the people who can really benefit from them. All right, without further ado, here's Senior Pastor Dan Willis. So kids, uh, as we look at this uh, message today, uh, again from the Life Lessons in James, the war within. This, this is the big one. Uh, not that they're not all big, but this one is because I don't think we understand war. You see, war is greater and bigger than we sometimes think of it. We sometimes think that there's war and we look at it as a military conflict, and then we look at uh, other things in, in our personal lives. It's just like a conflict or, or just a, a small a spat. But the fact of the matter is, Paul says that we are at war. We are in a spiritual war. It's between good and evil. And we're going to decide which side we're on. How's about that? Anybody feel like, as a Christian, you're in a war with evil? Inevility? Yes. You should, because it's true. And Paul says, we do not fight against flesh and blood. However, we fight against principalities of the universe. Evility. And as long as the devil roams the earth, we will be in a war. Amen? Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me to James chapter 4. We'll take a look at what James has to say. A lot of Scripture today. A lot of Scripture talking about the different types of war that we have and how the Greek is broken down into quarrels or wars or other types of uh, ways to look at interpreting the words. And I'm going to be using the New Revised Standard today because I like the way it, it doesn't deviate from the direct translation. And it's encaptioned friendship with the world. Now, we've talked about being in the world, but not of it. Don't be friends with the world since the moment we understood what church was. But I think because we've been told this based on living a different lifestyle, rules and regulations in the church and none outside, that we've put that as the basis of friendship with the world or not, and that's false. That's false. And we didn't do it right as a church for many years. And sometimes we're not doing it right today in a different way. But that's a sermon for it is. But I'm going to tell you something. Even though I think legalism needed to go, I believe that now the pendulum has swung so far that anything goes. Not so. God doesn't allow that. And so we have to be balanced and temperate, yes? And we were learning that word temperate in our Sunday school class this morning from Timothy. And so as we look at this passage uh, in James from the New Revised Standard, James chapter 4, starting at verse 1, Friendship with the world, listen to this. James says, those conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? In other words, he acknowledges and states that the conflicts are there. The disputes are there. Where do they come from? It's not like they aren't happening. They are happening. Where do they come from? 
Do they not come from your cravings that are at war within you? In other words, the war is within yourself. Not only are you in a war amongst good and evil, your war in any organization you're in, you're also in a war within yourself. So war is threefold. It's against universal things. It's when an organization, including a church, amongst people, and it's also within yourself. And I think there must be as long as the devil reigns supreme on this, on this earth. There will be war. He says, you want something and you do not have it, so you commit murder. And you covet something you cannot obtain, so you engage wrongly in order to spend what you get on your own pleasure. Adulterers, do you not know that friendship with the world is an enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world becomes, get this, an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is for nothing that the Scripture says God yearns jealously for the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us, but He gives all the more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into dejection. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Friends, the most destructive force amongst mankind is war of any sort of any sort. War, von Clausewitz said, who was a 19th century military philosopher, said, war is a continuation of politics by other means. How true those words really are. Von Clausewitz understood that every war ever fought was because somebody wanted something that they couldn't get peaceably. And so it became for political gain or monetary gain, or some other type of gain, but it's always for gain. William Tecumseh Sherman was a general and commander of the Western Army of the Union. President Lincoln turned this guy loose in the southern state of Georgia to finally cut the Confederate Army in half and bring Georgia to its knees. You see, Georgia was a stronghold of the South, and she refused to sue for peace with the Union. Georgia was a big state. She had a lot of industry. And it took a lot of time to cover it. It took a lot of time to find it all. And she was beginning to be not only a military might, but an industrial might. And the only state in the southern states that could even hold a candle to the northern states in industry. And because she continued to make these things, make these weapons of war, Lee was able to continue to fight. Sherman hated war. Hated it. But he saw it as his duty to fight the war with a reckless abandon in order to win it so they could put an end to it. 
And because he understood what caused it, he also understood that he had to use brutal tactics in order to put it to a close. Because he understood that fighting it halfway or with some kind of political agenda, there would be no winner. It would continue to drag on and more people would die and more heartache. And he thought, why would we continue to do that? There are no rules in war and there shouldn't be. We had to go to Vietnam to find that that was true. And here's the thing. A lot of people thought Sherman was psychopathic, that he was a warmonger, that he just loved that stuff. Not true. In fact, he didn't like destruction neither. No, he simply believed that to stop the carnage of the Civil War that he so hated, total destruction of the South's ability to make war and to break their spirits and desire for war, well, was absolutely necessary. And he would have to do the unthinkable to keep it from continuing, and so he did. So what does he do? He besieged the city of Atlanta in 1864, and he sent a letter to the political leaders of the city of Atlanta, and he told them that he planned to burn the city to the ground. Now, a guy who loved this kind of thing would have just set it on fire and not cared if he told anybody about it or not. In fact, he wouldn't tell you. He would just burn it. But he didn't. He gathered forces around the city. He sent a letter to him and said, get everybody out. I'm going to burn this place. That doesn't sound to me like a warmonger. But the city founders thought he was ridiculous and bluffing. So they sent a letter back to him telling him that they couldn't move everybody out. There's no way they can move the pregnant women out. And he said, well, how many of them are there? There's too many indigent and destitute that they couldn't move out. Well, how many are there? We will help you. We will lay down our arms and help you bring these people out of the city. Now, what commander who's bent on destroying people and didn't care would do that? None. And they said, no, there's just no need to burn the city, so, you know, do what you got to do. We're not, we're not doing it. In other words, they wanted what they wanted. So he sent a letter back to them. And said, listen, I have to burn the city, guys. You don't understand. You guys are making arms and ammunition that's helping the southern cause. Now, I know you're in the south. But to bring this war to a close, I have to destroy your ability to make war. And that is ammunition. That is textiles. That is clothing. That is supplies. That is food. That is ammunition. That is everything that you use to make war. I have to stop it. I have to destroy it. And I have been ordered to do it by my commander-in-chief, and I am going to do it. I'm giving you time to get people out before I do it. You still don't need to burn the city. Yes, I do. Because if I don't, you will continue to make war by making textiles. In the same letter, Sherman calls out the evility that started the war in the first place. And this is what I want to call your attention to. This is the kind of man that understood what war is and why it has to be fought. Listen to his words. He says, 
You cannot qualify war in harsher terms than I will. War is cruelty and you cannot refine it. In short, war is hell. And people probably heard that in school because it's been attributed to him for years. And those who brought war into our country deserve all the curses and maledictions a people can pour out. I know that I myself had no hand in making this war, and I also know that I will make more sacrifices today than any of you to secure peace. In other words, this will lay upon my heart and my conscience forever what I'm about to do, but I have no choice. It's a sacrifice I have to make for the union and to put this dreadful war to an end. That's a sacrifice. Not a joyfulness, not a desire, a sacrifice. And I will carry it for the rest of my life, is what he's saying. But here's the deal. You cannot have peace and a division of our country. If the United States submits to a division now, it will not stop but we'll go on until we reap the same fate of Mexico, which is eternal war. And guess what? Mexico's still fighting. The United States does and must assert its authority wherever it once had power, for if it relaxes one bit to pressure, it is gone. And I believe that such is the national feeling. This feeling assumes various shapes, but it always comes back to that of the Union. Once more, admit the union, once more acknowledge the authority of the national government, and instead of devoting your houses and streets and the roads to the dread uses of war, I and this army will at once become your protectors and supporters, shielding you from further danger. In other words, stop making war, lay down your arms, sue for peace, and I will become your protector, not your enemy. I know that a few individuals cannot resist this torrent of error and passion, such as swept the South into rebellion. But you can point them out so that we may know those who desire a government and those who insist on war and its desolation. You might as well appeal against a thunderstorm as against these terrible hardships of war. They are inevitable, and the only way the people of Atlanta can hope once more to live in peace and quiet at home is to stop the war, which can only be done by admitting that it began in error and is perpetuated in pride. Church, the greatest desire of mankind ought to be peace. But sometimes it's war. And this desire for peace ought to be true among believers, don't you think? In Ephesians 4, 1 to 3, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling which you've been called, with all humility and all gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. The fact is, we can eliminate war among believers only by eliminating what causes that war. The question is, how do we do it? I think what we have to do is admit that there's a war amongst believers. There's a war within, there's a war within, and there's a war without. Threefold. We fight against evility, which is the devil. We fight against one another in every entity that's ever been put together in the history of mankind, including the church. And we fight within our own selves, just as Sherman was doing. He's fighting an enemy. 
He's also fighting within himself because he doesn't want to do what he has to do. But he knows he must to stop it. Every single military commander I've ever known questioned the morality of what they had to do. But in the end, they did what they had to do or not. And here was a commander that was willing to do what it took to finish it. And I wonder what we're willing to do as a church, as individuals, to put an end to it. We might not be able to stop the war out there against the devil because he's always going to be in, at war with us while he exists. But we can certainly stop the war within and we, by the Holy Spirit. We can certainly stop the war within by the Holy Spirit. Churches ought not be fighting amongst each other. Not, not other churches, not within the church itself. But we are. And you know what? Every single time it's due to pride or desire for something. Either power, authority, or something. Every single time. Let's talk about the causes. War in the heart causes war amongst believers. I want that to sink in your brain pan for a minute. War in the heart will always cause war amongst believers. First, let me explain why the word war is used in some translations and its conflict in other translations. Some of your Bibles may say conflict. The Greek word used in this passage is polemos. Polemos, just like it sounds, P-O-L-E-M-O-S, which is most usually translated as war, but also means quarrel or wrangle at times. In other words, not necessarily a military battle, but rather a struggle among people of different proportions that could indeed include a military conflict or battle, hence war. But it begins outside of a military conflict. It always has. This is why early Bible translations simply and accurately called it war, while newer translations just as accurately, but perhaps a little more refined, translate it as quarrels. Yet Dr. Woods simply reminds us that while this is true, the real war isn't among ourselves, but a war against humanity by an evil power that is absolutely not of human origin. And you know that's got to be Satan, right? Got to be the devil. Kids? Right? Come on, you guys. Okay? It's pretty easy to see where this war comes from. So now we know that our enemy is not one another, never has been. We might war against each other, but our enemy is not each other. It's him. And ever since you said yes to Christ, he became your enemy, not one another. Amen? It's a fact. Why? Because he's an enemy of God. And if you side with him or do what he does, you too are an enemy of God. And James says so. And I don't want to be an enemy of God. Do you want to be an enemy of God? Not interested. Okay? So let's look at who the real enemy is. We must understand what causes this strife between us. And to do this, we have to understand something else. First of all, what is war? And I told you about Dr. Woods. Okay? Reverend Guy Woods was a prominent writer, pastor, evangelist, and attorney, believe it or not, <laughs> in Tennessee. From the 1920s until his death in 1993, he wrote some unbelievable books and commentaries, one of which has been my favorite on the book of James and the one I go to the most. 
He says in his writings that there is a war against the soul of humankind. And that this war is a prevailing state of strife which causes fightings, separate conflicts, and lusts, lusts amongst people, primarily believers. Yes, he says that the war is perpetrated by Satan and it causes war amongst believers because we lust just like unbelievers do, even though we shouldn't. That's where it begins. He further states that James is clear what the source is in the quarrels among us. Now, in the New International Version, the translators use the word desires, which is okay, but the Greek word used by James is hedonone, hedonone, H-E-D-O-N-O-N-E, hedonone, which you probably know we get our English word hedonism from, which actually means pleasure, okay? So desire really ought to be pleasure there. You could use either because desire isn't quite as deep of a meaning as pleasure is, okay? So the actual meaning is pleasure. And this is what the direct translations use. So in other words, James is saying that the quarrels and wars among us are actually due to a selfishness amongst believers where we want what we want in order to please ourselves. Wow. James is saying, because he's writing to the church. He's not writing to unbelievers. He's writing to the church. Amen? So the reason that there are quarrels and fightings and strife and wars, whatever you want to translate it, among you is that you desire, you lust after, you want pleasure for certain things, and you will do whatever it takes to get it, even you, even in the church. Now, people would say, shouldn't be that way in the church. But I think we're smart enough to see that it is. And as I began to think about that, I thought, wow. Clearly, desire to please yourself doesn't come from God. It couldn't. Does your desire to please yourself come from God? No. Because your desire from God ought to be to please God. Amen? And to please one another before ourselves. Yes? Church. Wake up. Of course. So what are we trying to do here then? See, James is saying that the quarrels and wars among us are actually due to the selfishness among us where we want what we want or to please ourselves, but it doesn't come from God. It does come from Satan, though. It does come from Satan. It always has. God didn't do it. Satan did. In that context, Dr. Woods is right about what James is saying, that the wars and conflicts we have amongst ourselves are part of this great war and this great strategy that Satan has, has always had, and will continue to use against mankind, which, I dare say, in turn, is part of this greater war he is waging against God. You see, he is using us as puppets to wage war against God. Do you understand that? Satan is and always has been against God. As soon as he rebelled against God, he's been against him ever since. He's been waging war against God from the day he was tossed out of heaven. Yes or no? And he has gotten mankind caught up in this conflict so that we too participate in this war against God. Whenever we're disobedient, we're warring against God. Do you understand that? Friends, this is so easy a caveman could get it. I think they did. We are fighting 
against God. Period. When we get caught up in the devil's antics, the devil's pretty active, isn't he? See, you have to look at what James is talking about. Since God is our creator, and now through Christ, he's our redeemer and protector, we are caught up in this war that Satan desperately wants to win, and he wants to do it through you and me. Because he believes that if he can get more people to follow him than follow God, he wins. It isn't true, mind you. Oh, he might win a battle or two here and there, and he might have it for a period of time, but in the end, God's the one that passes the judgment, and God's the one that doles out the punishment, and he's going to lose. And anybody that's with the, the enemy is going to lose too. You do understand that, yes? Who among you does not understand that? You stand with Satan, you lose, period. And you don't have to say you stand with Satan. Doing what he does is standing with him. Amen? You've aligned yourself with him because it doesn't come from God. And if the Spirit is in you, what you do ought to be from God. Yes or no? See, this is very easy. So if you're doing things that are of the devil, then you ought to look at the Spirit that's in you. Whose is it? Amen? Very simple to understand. Now, to me, this is stunning because our enemy isn't one another. It never has been. Who is our enemy? Church, who's our enemy? Who's our enemy? Are you sure? Then why are we fighting amongst ourselves? Why are we fighting against people in other churches? Why are we fighting against other Christians? Disagreements are one thing. Fighting, different ballgame. Hmm? Isn't it? We're either fighting against authority. We're fighting against ways of doing things, misunderstanding, or something of that nature. But your enemy is not one another, and it's not God. Not if you belong to Him, it isn't. So your enemy is the one who's always been your enemy and the one that wants to take you to hell with them. That's your enemy. Listen to what the Bible has to say about this. 1 Peter 2.11, Galatians 5.17, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desire, which wages war against your soul. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with one another, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But you know what we're told to do? Whatever you want. We teach our children to do whatever they want. We teach society it can do whatever it wants. You know how we do it? By encouraging them or not punishing them when they do. That's how we do it. I face a society of adults every single week who stand in front of me or complain about this or that, and almost every time it's because they're doing what they want, not what they have to do or what they must do, because we taught them that they can. What about my feelings? What about my wants? Well, that doesn't matter. You are responsible for who you are. It's a fact. You're responsible. You're responsible to do right. You're responsible to work and get paid. You're responsible to take care of your spouse, and you're responsible to take care of your children. That's where you belong. And if you're not doing it, shame on you. I don't care who you are. 
You're responsible to do right by your nation. And if you're not, shame on you. And if you don't like it, move out. That's exactly what I say. I believe that. You're responsible to the Word of God, and if you're not, you belong to Lucifer, period. That's a fact. Now, see, people don't want to hear that because we want someone to pat us on the back and pat our hands and say, bless your heart, you can't help it, it's okay. And I'm saying, step up. I'm grateful I never had to go through the Great Depression. But I know people who did. You want to talk about sacrifice? I've never been in, in a war as big as World War II or even Vietnam. But I was in war enough in Beirut, and brother, that's all I wanted to see. That's all I can say. I know what sacrifice is. I've seen people who made them. We don't know what that is today. We really don't. We really don't. We let stupid things get in the way of stepping up. Fights for, for race, background, creed, belief systems, you name it, that's what we're fighting. And it shouldn't be there. Especially not amongst Christians, it shouldn't be. I understand why the world fights. Why do we fight? We know who our enemy is. He's been exposed to us by the Lord Jesus Christ. We should be doing different than that. We need to recognize who our enemy really is and take the fight back to him. Amen? Because we've been given every way and reason to do that. Christ has already defeated our enemy. Praise God for that. Anybody? Hey, we ought to get, God ought to get a round of applause for that. Don't you think? He's already been defeated. You do not have to succumb to the garbage He lays out and doles out in your life. You do not. And this is what James is trying to tell us, friends. A war in the heart causes war amongst believers. And if your heart isn't right, it's going to cause war in the church you're in or the believers you run with, guaranteed. And so if you're fighting amongst believers, take a look at what's in your heart. <laughs> That's what James is saying. Not my words, his. Talk to him about it. And someday you're going to get the opportunity if you belong to Christ. Because I believe James is in heaven. Anybody? You know what else is a problem? Selfish hearts. Here we go. You ready? You see, friends, it isn't just selfishness that causes the problem. We'll say it's selfishness. No, 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 no. It's deeper than that. Let me explain to you the difference between selfishness and a selfish heart. Because there's a difference. How many of you didn't know there's a difference between selfishness and a selfish heart? I'm going to teach you today that there is. Okay? You see, we all deal with selfishness on occasion. Don't we? It kind of depends on what it is. It's an occasional issue that comes with a certain situation or a moment of weakness. But a selfish heart, that's a lifestyle. You're selfish about everything. Same thing with jealousy. Either you're jealous about everything or it's a, something that happens on occasion because of a situation. And there's a big difference between the two. And right now, you know what you're having to do? You've got to determine right now because God's making you whether you're Occasionally selfish, or if you have a selfish heart. And I can't see you, so I don't know what you're thinking. Here, that's better. Better. 
Because when you tell me that I was preaching to you, I wasn't. Not one of your, thought, not one of your faces came to my, my mind when I created this message back in December of last year. I'm serious. And some people are going to say, man, you brought that message because that stuff's going on around here today. No. <laughs> I, I didn't even decide when the... I, in fact, you asked Jonathan and John and Marianne, this succession of messages was put together a long time ago. I told them, this is the order they're going to come in. Here they are. Yes or no? Okay. This, this is just the next one in line. So if the shoe fits, I guess we better wear it. Amen. You see, a selfish heart is a lifestyle. It's who we are. And the difference is, I can understand a selfish heart in an unbeliever. In fact, I expect it. I expect an unbeliever to have a selfish heart. Don't you? They're built that way. We all are. But for the believer, Christ has come in and changed all of that. He has delivered you and transformed you into something else. Praise God. Amen? Praise God. So if there's a pattern of selfish behavior amongst Christians, then we must take a closer look at their conversion, don't you think? If we have a selfish behavior within us, then we need to take a look at our conversion. Are we really converted for Christ? Is the Holy Spirit really living in us? Are we acting like that? Or are we acting like the Spirit that used to be in us? Because, see, they can't coexist. They can't live together. The Bible says good and evil cannot coexist. They can't live together. And again, those, those, those stickers on the cars, the bumper stickers, I told you. Uh, there's no such thing as coexist amongst those religions. You can't do it. You can't do it because Christianity doesn't coexist with anybody else. Now, they can call it whatever they want. We'll tolerate them, but we can't accept them. There's a difference, isn't there? You see, the other side doesn't want tolerance. They, they preach tolerance, but what they really want is acceptance. And that's evil, friends. Any religion that's not Christian doesn't believe in Christ. They can't because it's the only one. No one comes to the Father except through whom? There you go. And why are we called Christians? Because of Christ. Any other religion won't get you there. I don't care what the world says. I don't care what the Pope says. He's wrong. There's not another avenue to God. The Bible says there's not. He's the first pope in history to ever say that because he's the first one to ever believe it, I think. Shame on him. And praise the Roman Catholic Church today for standing against him because he's wrong. And anybody else that preaches it is wrong too. You know why? Because I put my faith and trust right here. And it says the only way to God is through the Son, Jesus Christ. And that's how I got there. Is that how you got there? It's the only way to get there. The only way to stay there too. You see, friends, selfish hearts cause selfish actions. A selfish heart causes a selfish action. In verse 2, you'll notice that James says in the NIV, you desire and you don't have, so you kill. That's what he says. You desire and you don't have, so you kill. In the New American Standard, in a direct translation, the words are lust and murder. So it's just difference of translation. Desire and lust kill and murder. Desire and lust, clearly, if we have a desire for anything but God, well, He has the right to label it whatever He chooses. What's your desire today? 
Because the word used here can also mean covet. It can also mean covet. We want something so badly that we're willing to do just about anything in order to get it or to do it. And as we will see in the next point, James was pretty harsh on Christians for thinking and feeling that way or any way like it. See, we, we don't think as Christians we need to call that stuff out. We don't think we should be hard on people that do that stuff. Sherman understood. He was a military commander. He understood. And I think we as Christians better understand pretty quick too. There's no middle of the road when it comes to saved or not. You understand that, right? No such thing. Either saved or you aren't. Either have Christ in you or you don't. The Spirit lives in you or it doesn't. It controls you or it doesn't. Not sometimes, on occasion, because if it doesn't all the time, then you're not surrendered to it, and therefore it's not. Yes or no? When you surrender to the Holy Spirit, does He not come in and take up residence? And does He not control you? And don't you want Him to? Okay? So if you're controlling you, then He's not. Amen? Yes or no? Come on. Got to tell it like it is. Now, I know not everything's black and white, but this one is. It's 100% black and white. And as we'll continue to see, and as this, this goes on, James goes right back to the source. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in Colossians 3, 5 to 6. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God, get this, is coming. You know why the wrath of God is coming? You know why Christ is going to return? And want, want to know why God is going to bring judgment upon the earth? Because we have done everything contrary to what He commanded and commanded. That's why. We're going against what the Scripture says, what Jesus taught, and because we are, His wrath is coming. And the Father and the Son, no matter what anybody wants to think, are always together every time. Jesus will not stand in the way of the Father's destruction of those who refuse. And there's people out there, Christians out there, that think He will. Not going to happen. Read the Scripture. It will tell you. Not my, not my opinion. His. What about murder and kill? I think that this part has confused readers for a lot of years, a long time. You see, it, it isn't really that difficult to understand. Notice what the Apostle Paul and the Apostle John have to say in 1 Corinthians 3.3 and 1 John 3.15 respectively. You are still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Paul's pretty clear about that. The reason that we have these problems is because the Spirit isn't controlling us. We're worldly in our understanding. We're worldly in our human understanding and desire. We're using our own thoughts, our own feelings, our own understanding to do and act. That's the problem. But a Christian doesn't. A Christian, the Spirit does it. And Paul says, since you do these things, Clearly, the Spirit is not in you. Clearly, you're still worldly, and it's a shame. And then John goes on to say this, Anyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. Now, that's important to understand. Let me explain to you what this means. James is trying to say uh, not that we're actually killing one another in the physical sense, although... 
he leaves the door open to that possibility when we're driven by lust and people have murdered others by because of lust for something. Yeah? Hadn't it? Okay. It's happened before, more than once. But more to the point, Paul and John point to the fact that when we lust and desire so much that we're no longer controlled by the Holy Spirit, but by evil spirits. Did you, did you hear that? you understand that? In this manner, we are still worldly and therefore not Christian. Now, I know people want to say, I can't judge another person. Well, not on some things, but you can judge whether the fruits of the Spirit are in there or not. And if someone is displaying things that are not fruits of the Spirit, they're displaying things that are worldly, then I would say that their spirit is worldly, wouldn't you? Is it any wonder we're so blinded by our own ambitions and wants that we don't put ourselves uh, or don't put others ahead of ourselves? Is it any wonder? You see, we begin to not love people, but we begin to hate them, even if we don't realize it. And that leads to a selfishness within us that no longer allows us to worry or care about the important things such as salvation. We want something so badly and we'll go to any lengths to get it that we will basically do things and say things that we should never say if we were a Christian. And we'll put ourselves above everybody else. And Jesus said, put your enemy above yourself. Well, you're not Christ-like if you're putting yourself first, are you? And when you begin to do that, the selfishness turns your eyes away from the important things such as salvation and a life with Christ for the other person. That person that's likely going to live in eternity with Satan if you don't put your feelings aside and help them and do something about it. But when you're so busy looking at self, how are you going to do that? This is what James is trying to tell you. And what happens is we're actually condemning them eternally. That's what happens. That's what he means by murder and kill. Because you were so worried about self and getting what you wanted, how you wanted it, and the timing that you wanted it, that you forgot that there's an awful lot of people out there that you know that are going to go to hell tomorrow if Christ comes. And you're so busy focused on you that you did nothing for them. And guess what? That makes you a murderer. Because if Christ was in you, if the Spirit was in you, where would your focus be? Would it be on you? Would your church, tell me, would it be on you? Would it? Where would it be? Your eyes would be on Him first, and you would see what He sees, and that's them, not you. You're already saved. You don't need anything more than that. When, you're, when you have salvation, you need nothing else. Do you understand that? You need nothing else outside of salvation. None of us does. Amen? Amen? So whatever you're doing, whatever you're doing, if it's not about that, guess what? It's on you. Understand this today. Very important. Got to grab it. All of this, my friends, comes from a selfish heart. Every single bit of it. When God no longer controls your heart and mind, then who is controlling it? <laughs> right? I mean, if God's not controlling it, who's doing it? Right? I'm saying this with a smile on my face because it's almost laughable. Like that we don't know it somehow. If, if God isn't controlling your heart, who is? I mean, really? Do you really think you're doing it? Do you really think you're the one controlling your heart if God isn't? Because people think that. And doesn't the enemy want you to think that? 
And if God isn't controlling your heart, then what attitude do you think you're going to have? (laughs) I mean, if Satan's controlling your heart, which he is, if God isn't, then what kind of attitude are you going to have? What kind of person are you going to be? What's going to be important to you? What will be the desires of your heart? What will be your lust? What will be be going on in you? What will you fight for? What will you go after? You tell me. I mean, I'm just a messenger. Don't shoot me. It really is that quiet in here, isn't it? Because James is pretty forthwith. Friends, you, you cannot interpret this any other way. But somebody out there is going to because they don't want to take responsibility for who they are. And we got, we got generations of people refusing to take responsibility of who they are. Do I need to explain that to you? Do you know that? Who among you knows that that's right? That's all. Just, just those few. Friends, please. This generation doesn't want the church to exist because they want it to be about them, and in the church it can't be. Right? If you're in the church and Christ is in you, it ain't about you. It's never been about you. But they want it to be about them. And whether you're a Baptist or you aren't, a pretty prominent Baptist wrote in the first line of his book, The Purpose Driven Life, it's not about you. He's right. It's not. But if it is about you, like they want it to be, then it can't be about God. And it certainly won't be about your fellow man. You see, it is that simple. It's just that simple. Did you know that selfish hearts also cause selfish prayers? I had to put this in here. Because I think some people think, well, there's no way I can pray selfishly. Oh, yeah, 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 you can. And we do. In fact, how many of you would admit you probably have prayed selfishly at one time or another? Uh Uh-huh. And you know it today, don't you? You see, this one's rather obvious to me. Jesus is completely saying that we only ask for things that will benefit ourselves. Now, you notice I said Jesus. Because James is writing at the behest of the Christ because his spirit was in him. You understand that? And so James might have penned the words, but Christ put them there. Okay? First, there isn't anything wrong with asking for things that benefit us if, in fact, it's something of a necessity that God has already promised to take care of anyway. If if you belong to Christ, He promised to take care of you. If you're praying for things that will do that, there's nothing wrong with that. You understand? You, you, you can pray and ask for things that will benefit you when it's of a necessity to take care of your clothing, your shelter, uh, your well-being, whatever. That, that's, he promised that anyway. You don't always get it because there are certain things he wants to do because he wants your, your, uh, your heart anyway. But there's nothing wrong with asking for those things with the right attitude. But the fact is, it always comes back to the heart, doesn't it? It comes back to your heart. And James is saying that many people have wrong and selfish motives within their prayers. Clearly, this could be a problem. The Greek word that's used here is kakos, K-A-K-O-S, which means to be influenced by low, mean, or selfish considerations. Now, of course, nobody in the humanity would be influenced by those things, would they? Clearly, we would. 
It also sometimes is interpreted consume, as in to wastefully squander. And if you put it that way, what he's actually saying is, we are way too desirous or covetous of things that cause us to lose sight of the important things. Well, he's already mentioned that, and now he comes back to it. Okay? Salvation and eternity are and always have been, always will be, the important things, don't you think? Jesus himself told us about earthly things in Matthew 6, 20 to 21. He says, Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but rather store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves cannot break in and steal. Now, it's translated do not, but it actually means cannot, for sure. That means it can never be taken from you, yeah? That's beautiful. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm saying, saying to you that it's not wrong to pray for material things. I, I, don't hear me say that. I'm not. Because Jesus told us in the Lord's Prayer to pray for what? Give us this day our daily bread. So you, it's, it's okay, yeah? And the Apostle John prayed for the well-being of people in his third epistle uh, physically and for comfort financially, that we would be well off if the Lord would see fit. So again, it isn't wrong, but it is wrong to play selfishly when it just benefits you and that's it. Friends, war in the heart comes from friendship with the enemy. Always that. I got to come full circle here in this first part because you got to grasp it. War in the heart comes from friendship with the enemy. Now, I know that people are warring in their heart wouldn't believe that. They wouldn't admit it. But enough for them to say. God says it is. God says that war in the heart comes from being friends with the enemy. 1 John 2, 15 to 17, get this. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Say it with me. Do not love the world or the things in the world. But we do, though. We love them both, don't we? Okay? The love of the Father is not in those who love the world. We will say it is. We will say that we're going to accept sinful lifestyles because we love those people. And the Bible says, no, when you love that stuff because you allow it, you don't really love them. You're condemning them to a life of eternity in hell. And isn't that true? For all that is in the world, the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, the pride of riches comes not from the Father, but from the world. And the world and its desire are, get this, passing away. And I'm watching that before my eyes. Anybody? But those who do, do the will of God, what? Who knows their scripture? Those who do the will of God live forever. Live forever. John is saying two things here, and I don't think they need the explanation. By being friends with the world, we are declaring war on God. Can you imagine that? Can you actually, in your mind, imagine declaring war on God, and yet people are? Amen? By being friends with the world, secondly, we are being unfaithful to God. And if we aren't faithful to God, here's my question. Will He be faithful to you? Of course not. James says in verse 8 that if we draw near to God, what will God do? Right. 
And if that isn't true, then what is? Because if, if this is true, if, if, if we draw near to God, He draws near to us, it makes sense that if we're faithful to God, He'll be, true, he'll be faithful back to us. Yeah? And aren't you glad God started out by being faithful to you in the first place? To teach you how to be. Friends, is there any doubt in your minds today what causes war? Is there any doubt what causes conflict? Is there any doubt what causes division? Is there any doubt what causes dissension among you? Because to tell you the truth, it's pretty hard to dispute and fight it when it's right here in front of you. Here's another question. What causes selfishness among you? What causes self-centeredness amongst us? Listen to the accusation of the Apostle Paul about people in the last days. Are you ready for this? Last days, I think, is our days. Anybody, anybody with me? This might be the last days. Okay, this is what the Apostle Paul says about our society in the last days. Even in amongst a, a, a nation of peoples who founded their nation upon Christian principles, but we've gotten away from it. That's why we're included here. You follow me? Listen to this. I can put this together in a beautiful package and they'll still deny it. But here it is. Romans 1, 28 to 32. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, which we're not doing, right? God gave them up to a debased mind and to things that should not be done. They were filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, there's that word, strife, deceit, craftiness. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, rebellious toward their parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Golly gee whiz, he just described my society. He described my society today. It used to be when I was a kid, people just automatically thought right and did the right thing. Now, we might fall once in a while, but automatically we knew the right thing to do. Today, we don't even know what it is. Because God's given us over to this debased mind that we want anyway. Since we've taken him out of everything, what do we expect? If he's the standard and we take him out, how can we know? This is so easy. Well, of course we know what the problem is. He says, they know God's decrees that those who practice such things deserve to die. Yet they not only do them, but they applaud and encourage others who practice them. And isn't that happening in our society today? I don't think I need to go any further with that. Do you? I'm pretty sure it's right there. You know, if you don't want to believe it, that's up to you. But what do you believe then? Because it's right here. I can watch it. It's on the news every day. It's on every Yahoo forum I pick up. So here's the second part of my message, and it's quick. What brings peace then? I mean, right? I mean, you got to know. I mean, if, if the only way to stop it is with peace, what brings it? I mean, Sherman knew what he had to do. He knew where it came from. He knew what had to happen, even if it was brutal, to fix it. And praise God, we had somebody like Sherman, that God allowed Sherman to command. 
Because I don't know what would have happened. How many more would have died if he didn't? What do you think? The war would have gone on another year or two. How many more would have died in that war? Sherman's a hero, regardless of what people say about him. He was a peacemaker, not a peacekeeper. We talked about that last week, didn't we? So what brings peace? Well, uh, Dr. Guy Wood says again, peace is life's greatest temporal blessing. Peace with oneself, peace amongst people, peace in the world. But it rarely exists on any of these levels. <laughs> he wrote this, friends, in the 1940s. <laughs> he didn't have a clue what was coming yet, did he? Died in 93. It wasn't quite that bad yet. Okay? It rarely exists on any of these levels. It's a tragic commentary on man's inability to live at peace with his fellows that there has been open armed conflict between men and nations in every generation since our Lord was here upon the earth. However, in the efforts to put forth to eliminate it, men seldom seek out the real reasons therefore. In other words, we want peace, but we seldom try to find out what the real reasons for the conflicts we have in exchange for the peace we desire. We seldom want to find out what the source is in order to get peace. We'd rather just war, because we're right. James, however, gives us seven imperatives for peace. In verses 6 to 10, they're going to be a good start. Seven imperatives for peace. Number one, submit to God. I, I, <laughs> do I really need to expound on that? I mean, do I? Does anybody? Does anybody in here not know what it means to submit to God? It means stop submitting to self. Stop wanting it your way. Stop doing it your way. Stop thinking you can do anything you want and you deserve it. Because if you do that, you're not submitting to God. And there's a bunch of people in the world today that think it's about them and it's not. Never has been. And if you've got a kid that's doing it, put an end to it. If you've got a friend that's doing it, speak out on it. If you're the one doing it, shape up. It's real simple. We have to. Submit to God. It's, it's, it's a one-word sentence, period. Submit to God. Boom. I think he's trying to make a point. What do you think? Make a point. Secondly, resist the devil, period. Here again, do I really need to expound upon that? Anything that's outside of what the Scripture says is friends with the devil. Resist that stuff. Resist things that you know are wrong. If someone tells you about somebody else, resist the temptation to repeat it or ask questions about it. It's called slander and gossip. Hmm? If someone says, you don't have to do these things that we know you must do, stop listening to it. You're responsible. You're an adult. Step up. It's time. If someone says, well, that, that's probably not sinful, uh, you know, it's just love, it's whatever. Well, well, God says it is, so guess what? Step up, because it is. Call it for what it is. Resist the devil. Pretty simple. He says, thirdly, draw near to God. Well, that's pretty simple, too. Get away from self and draw near to God, because if you're close to self, 
you're going to want what self wants, and that's what the devil wants. But if you draw near to God, you do away with that stuff, and guess what? You're drawing near to God, because He'll draw near to you, you see. In fact, the writer of Hebrews in 10.22 says this, Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. He says, come to Christ, allow Christ to live in you, get baptized, which is signification of putting off the old self and what you used to want to do, and start living for Christ. And stop trying to live in both worlds because you can't. If you're going to identify with Christ in His resurrection, you're darn sure going to have to identify with His cross too. Because if you don't, you're not going to get the other one. Amen? You have to submit to God and allow Him to kill you on that cross to self. Period. And anything that's what I want to do isn't. He says, fourth, wash your hands. Isaiah 1.16, wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. I'm thinking, is it really that simple? Stop doing wrong? I, I think it is. Wash your hands. It means stop doing it. If you wash your hands, you're no longer dirty. They're no longer dirty anymore, right? But if you're playing in dirt, guess what? Your hands are still going to be dirty, aren't they? So stop doing dirt, and it won't be dirty. You see, we, we, we somehow want to take this whole thing and say, oh, it's not that simple. It isn't. Isaiah says it is. It's just that simple. And God says it is. This is and my question is then, why do we constantly make excuses for ourselves and others and use phrases like, I can't help it. They can't help it. God doesn't say that. God says, I don't ask you to help it. I can help it. I can help it. Come to me and I will see to it. Yeah? So if you've got the power of God who's already defeated devil behind you and in you, what can you not do? Jesus said, nothing would be impossible for you. So I ask you today, church, what in dirt can you not do? Nothing. Otherwise, you're saying God can't. When you say, I can't, and you're a Christian and He's in you, you're saying, He can't. And can anybody really say that? If you know God, you can't. Quickly, purify your heart. There's a thought. Purify your hearts. Matthew 5, 8, Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Jesus is clearly saying during His Sermon on the Mount, if you aren't pure in heart, then you won't see God. And you know what? I think we know whether we're pure in heart or not. What do you think? We say we don't know, but I, if you don't know, then you're not. <laughs> Fair enough? If you, if you don't know, then you're not. So I would say if you are pure in heart, you're going to know. So the question is, how much more clear does he need to be on this? Because see, the devil doesn't want to clear, but God does. So who are you following? Grieve, mourn, and wail. Now that's an interesting combination, isn't it? Matthew 5, 4, 2 Corinthians 7, 10. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Do you know what he means by that? Let me tell you. 
Jesus is speaking from the Sermon on the Mount, but he's talking about mourning for spiritual things. In other words, it ought to bother us that the world is actually getting closer and closer to judgment, and we're not doing anything about it. That's, that's what he's trying to say. There are people out there who think they are doing right, but they're not. And you know why they're doing it? Because we're letting them. Because we refuse to step on their toes, because we're afraid we might offend them. Jesus doesn't have a problem offending you. And aren't you glad he doesn't? Huh? Notice what Paul says in 2 Corinthians, that we shouldn't be as worried about hungry people, hurting people, pe hurting people or other physical and emotional things as we are about the salvation of those people. But you know what we are? We're more impressed with the, with the former. We're worried about whether they eat or not, whether their feelings are hurt or not, whether they're struggling money or emotionally or whatever. We're, and I'm not saying you shouldn't be worried about those things. Neither is he. But whenever you put those things above their salvation, you got your priorities screwed up right there. You know why? Because Jesus didn't. He even told the rich young ruler, but this one thing <laughs> you lack. So go get rid of that stuff and come and follow me. Now we can do something. And the guy couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. You know why? Because his heart wanted the stuff of the earth. He was worried about that. Jesus wasn't concerned with the woman at the well. He wasn't worried about stepping on her toes. He did it. He wasn't concerned with the adulterous woman in the, in the city square, neither. Stop sinning. Yeah? Stop it. Quit it. Cut it out. Did he or did he not say that to those people? Yes, he did. But somebody out there is going to say, no, he put his arm around him and said, bless your heart, it's okay, I understand. No, he didn't. Never did. Not one time. They put compassion together with acceptance. No. That's the Christianity of today, and the devil did that. No. Compassion doesn't mean acceptance. Never has. Your compassion is misguided if it is. Your compassion ought to be that they're going to miss heaven. Hmm? How about that first? Uh... Look at any church in the world today, and you tell me where they put their resources. Where do they put their resources? Huh? Is it toward getting people saved, or is it toward feeding them, giving them money? Self-help programs, loving on them. You tell me. I'm not saying we shouldn't do those things. I'm simply saying, where's your priority? What was God's priority? What's Christ's priority? Where's it always been? Salvation. Amen? Lastly, seven imperatives. Humble yourselves. That might be the biggest one, which is why it's last. We don't want to humble ourselves. Because it's all about me, don't you know? Always has been. We're teaching our children. It's all about them. Which is why we have no winners and losers anymore. i got news for you. When you grow up, there's going to be winners and losers in your society. Huh? Yeah? That's just one thing, kids. There's a gazillion. I stay here for an hour, but you want to go. 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that He may lift you up in due time. Due time being the key. Cast all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. This one is really simple. Stop being so prideful. Stop being so self-centered. Stop being self-appointed. Stop being self-righteous. And stop being self-entitled. That's what He says. Stop. You know what? I don't even know. They do it so often, they don't know what it is. 
they think it's part of life. How can we surrender to God and rely on Him to provide for us and give us what He wants to give us if we're so busy trying to get what we want? How can you? Our society today goes directly against God, and this is why it has become an enemy of God. You take God out of your schools, you take God out of the public, uh, you take God out of awareness, you tell people they can't talk about God around other people because it offends them, you become an enemy of God. When your nation was founded on that stuff and you take it out, you're no longer a nation under God. You're no longer a godly nation. And then you want to know why your society is crumbling at the base and going to collapse just like Rome did and why the Bible says we're going to. You want to know why? It didn't take me very far to figure it out. You? It's real simple. Now you tell me. Am I, full of, am I a windbag today? I'm just delivering what he says. But I can see what he's saying. And therefore, I want to do something about it. Is it any wonder the devil wants us to take God out of everything politically? Is it any wonder he wants us to take God out of school, in public, and even in private life and industry? Is it any wonder that if a private company puts the Ten Commandments on their front doorstep that people throw a fit about it? Let alone the public square. Really? And scream separation of church and state? Well, like we talked in our Sunday school class today, they don't know what it means, but they have an opinion about it. And you ought not have an opinion unless you know what you're talking about. Amen is right. You see, friends, God wants us to lift up. He wants to lift us up when He returns to take us home. That's what James talked about. God wants to lift us up either from the grave or walking on the earth up with Him. And I want to be amongst that. Do you? He wants to lift us up at the appropriate and due time is what He said. He wants to take us home. And the devil wants us to remain on the earth or in the grave. Because those who are outside of God are going to do just that. They're either going to remain in the grave or they're going to remain on earth. <laughs> and henceforth begins the great tribulation that Jesus said no one will want to see. But I'm, I'm not sure we mean, which is why we continue to do what we're doing. And again, is it any wonder? Who is our nation following, I ask you? And who might the church be following, do you think? As our worship team comes, I began to think, and I thought, what a delight it would be to live in a world without war, wouldn't it? What a delight it is to be in a church where there is no war amongst the brethren. And when it starts, I put an end to it right now. So if you ever get called up by me because I perceive that you're involved in a war within, don't be surprised. Because, and you know what? If I'm involved in a war within and you catch me, you call me on it too. Because that's what James is talking about here. We can stop this garbage. I, I, I can't be real concerned with what's going on down the street or across town or around the world. But I think if we do it right here, it will rub off in the rest of Christians. What do you think? Because we've got God on our side right here. God's on our side right here. But to have peace among believers, we have to have peace in our hearts. And allow me today to leave us with incredible words from the apostles Paul and Peter, who were at odds with each other, I might say, a lot. But they agreed on one thing, 
and that was him. Okay? Listen to this. Philippians 2, 1 to 4, 1 Peter 1, 22. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness, any compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. And you know what society says about that. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. And Peter, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for one another, love one another deeply from the heart. Because when you do that, you'll be concerned with their salvation and not whether their feelings are hurt or not. And that, friends, is biblical all day and all night and twice on Sunday. We can do this. Destructions are here. Devil's been defeated. God's for us. If he's with us, nobody can be against us. His spirit is in us. We've got everything we need to do it. My favorite Christian band for him. They're broken up now. You know why they broke up? Because they wanted to go out and do things in the church, and they're all worship leaders in churches somewhere. Everyone. And they felt that that was more important than making records. But they sang a song, and they came here, and Matt and Sue went with me to a concert over at uh, uh, Maryland Community Church several years ago. And one of my favorite songs, All I Need, I already have it. All I Need, I already have it. And if you don't know the song, and you don't know the genre, listen, everybody in here would love it. From, from the youngest teenagers up to the oldest person, all I need, I already have it. And it's a great encouragement. You need to understand that today. All you need, you already have it. And the altar's here if you think you don't. Or if you want to know what it is, the altar's here. If you don't know how to get it, the altar's here. Whatever ails you, the altar's here. If you're struggling with somebody in this church or outside of this church, the altar's here. If your heart hasn't been right, you know it's not right. The altar's here. If you're not sure if your heart's right, the altar's here. And if your heart is right, you ought to rejoice and praise Him, and the altar's here. Praise God. The war within can be defeated as the enemy is without. Amen? Stay on me today.